please be aware that this is a recording of a writing festival. As such, there are some adult concepts, probably a bit of swearing, and sometimes there might even be some triggering elements. So do be aware of that. If anything does make you feel uncomfortable, please stop listening at any point. Also, we do recommend you pop on some headphones. That way, the only person who can get offended is you. Welcome back to the Rights for Festivals podcast, where we're getting all lit up with the Wollongong Writers Festival. If you'd like to know more about Wollongong Writers Festival, go to www.wollongongwritersfestival.com or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook. This session is The White Girl with Tony Birch and Luke Carmen. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Uh, my name is Luke Carmen and it's my uh, somewhat intimidating pleasure to be the host for this in conversation today. Uh, before I introduce our guest, a special guest, I, I want to pay uh, my respects uh, to the Woody Woody people who are part of the Darwal Nation and are the traditional owners and custodians of the land that we're on. Our guest is uh, Dr. Tony Birch, uh, who is the author of eight books by my reckoning, uh, including but not limited to Ghost River, which won the Victoria Premier's Award, uh, 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 Blood, which was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin. In 2017, Dr. Birch was awarded the coveted uh, Patrick White Award. He was the 44th person to be awarded that particular uh, uh, award and the first Indigenous person to be so. Uh, you may know him, if you don't know him from his work, you may know him as a fixture on these festival circuits. Uh, he's frequently on the radio, too, as a host and a guest. And you may possibly also know him as a research fellow at the Victoria University. Okay, so today I'm going to be talking uh, almost exclusively about Tony's latest book, which is The White Girl. But there's going to be a time at the end when you can ask whatever questions you wish about any subject you wish uh, so, without further ado, please join me in giving a very gracious, warm Wollongong welcome to Dr. Tony Birch. <laughs> Tony, if you don't mind, I want to begin by talking about a promotional video you did for this book, where, for Booktopia, yeah. where you described it as essentially the story of a wonderful woman, Odette Brown, who is a matriarchal Aboriginal woman living in a small rural town and her struggle to keep care of her granddaughter, Sissy, and avoid the attention of a local policeman, Sergeant Lowe. So I wanted to begin this discussion about the book by asking him if you wouldn't mind to talk a little bit about Odette Brown, the character, and maybe what drove you to want to, to talk about her in the first place and tell her story. I, thank you very much, Luke. Um, Odette Brown is a woman in her early 60s and quite purposefully she's born in 1901, which is the year of Federation. So I wanted to put her birth at the same year of the birth of the Australian nation and she's a woman who spends her early years on a um, mission under the control of missionaries and then through her father's ingenuity and his skill as a miner gets to move off the mission and live with some sense of relative freedom under her father's care. 
When we meet her in the novel, she's living in the small hut that she had spent her childhood in with her father and she's the sole carer for her granddaughter, Sissy, who's a girl about to turn 13. Um, Sissy is a young, fair-skinned Aboriginal girl whose mother, Lila, um, vanished from the town not long after Sissy's um, birth and we don't know why that is the case. And essentially the novel is really about the ingenuity and ability of Odette to protect her granddaughter and the extent she has to go to 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 avoid her granddaughter being taken away from her. The other issue, I suppose, which I haven't talked about here, so if anyone's been in another session, we'll give them something new, is that it was set in a fictional town called Dean, which um, I created as a means of um, talking about the way that country towns or regional towns often operate for Aboriginal people. So there is a physical um, clear dividing line between what we call, might call the black side of town and the white side of town. And that is sort of negotiated throughout the novel because one of the dominant issues of the novel for me, Luke, was that whatever rules and regulations are in place to control Aboriginal people, summary justice is what really matters. So it depends who you know in the town, what's your relationship with a non-Aboriginal person. And if we take a physical boundary as, as something important, you could cross that boundary if you got on well with a local copper and you couldn't cross that boundary if the local policeman was really officious. So she's got to negotiate all those differences and variations. And what drove me to do it, I did mention it earlier, but I did really want to write a a strong Aboriginal woman at the heart of a novel who would be, you know, the hero of the story. So there, it wasn't one of those issues where, you know, when you're writing, where something reveals itself to you which you wouldn't have realised that you finally realised, no, that's actually a coward or, you know, she's, she's, she's one thing or another. I knew what I, what I hoped she would be and as I wrote and the character became clearer, she just became, to be honest, she became braver and stronger. That's, I, I, I think you can really, uh, you can feel that in the book. And we haven't uh, discussed this earlier, but uh, I was wondering, would you be willing, just because I wanted to talk about it, would you be willing to read the first paragraph of the book where we first meet Odette, just because I, I think it's important? Okay. Odette Brown rose with the sun, as she did each morning. She eased out of the single bed she chaired with her 12-year-old granddaughter, Cecily Ann, who went by the name of Sissy. Wrapping herself in a heavy dressing gown to guard against the cold, Odette closed the bedroom door behind her and went into the kitchen. She put a lit match to the wood chips and strips of old newspaper in the stove. She then fetched the iron kettle and made her way out into the yard, filling it with cold water from the tap above the gully trap. As she leaned forward, Odette felt an unfamiliar twinge above her left hip. She placed the kettle on the ground and clutched at her side, breathing in and out until the pain gradually subsided. Thanks very much. I, I, I hope you don't mind me asking you to read that, but I wanted to talk about that opening because I think uh, there's something special about it which is one of the great qualities of the book in total, and maybe you agree if you having heard it, but... Um, I think that's a simple scene with simple details, but they're extremely intimate and they're extremely affectionate and they're extremely tender. 
And I think one of the extraordinary things about this book from the very beginning is you get a really palpable sense of affection and love for the characters. And that comes across really strongly right from the outset. And when you talk about your work, uh, when you talk in interviews about your novels and your stories, one of the main things you talk about is the emotional resonance. It seems like that's really important to you. And I was wondering if from a stylistic point of view, if that's in this book, that feeling of love and affection is something that you, you set out specifically to develop or to, to emphasise, or if it's just it came through as a byproduct of telling Odette's story. No, you, I mean, you're right. In the first instance, it was quite purposeful. Um, a lot of my work, though, is about one of the ways of understanding a relationship is through physical space, how you occupy space, how people touch or don't touch. So that, you know, a lot of my work there is particularly to um, indicate intimacy and love. There'll be a lot of physical touch between people, but very slight. So it's very subtle. So that was quite deliberate. I have talked many times about when I wrote the first bath scene for this book, I wanted to convey the tenderness of simply washing a girl's hair. So um, I have four daughters and, you know, they're, they're too old to get in the bath now. <laughs> we don't have a bath. We got rid of it. It's the worst mistake I ever made. But anyway, um, I remember one of the great joys of being a parent is washing my daughter's hair. And one of the, I wrote a poem once. Um, a father brushes his daughter's hair on the first day of primary school. And it was about my 22-year-old daughter, Grace, and me getting her ready for that first day of primary school and her anxiety and sort of fear and me feeling that as I'm doing her hair. And um, it's the same with my grandkids now, that, that tenderness. So, that yes, it was deliberate. The two, within Aboriginal culture, the reasoning would be there's so much violence against Aboriginal women's bodies. Um, I wanted to show that show that love and tenderness as expressed between Odette and her granddaughter and Odette and with Odette and other women. So that was important. In the sense, though, of influences, I'm really um, influenced by a Japanese filmmaker, Korido or Koriada. He had a film out um, called Shoplifters last year in Australia, but he's a feature filmmaker and I love his films. I've seen, I think, all of them. And as a filmmaker, I love the way that he does the same thing. He works a lot with objects. You'll see a lot of touch between people and usually very close. So you might see two hands holding and so forth. So I've always been, been drawn to that. And I think it's a way of not, not showing love without having to talk about it or write about it. It's just that it gives depth of meaning to that. Um, tenderness. So, yeah, and in a way, you, it's you just, it's so important to me. But you try not to, you you don't want to overplay it or overemphasize it because it's just egging it too much. You you want the reader to to discover that for themselves. But yeah, it's it's something I've always, it is something I've always been drawn to. Well, I think that's important to point out. If I say the book comes across, reading this book comes across like the experience of experiencing love, it does 
it, it might imply that it's somewhat sentimental or that it's, it hits you in the face in some way, but that's not the case and that's not at all the way that your, your writing works. And I think one of the great technical achievements of this book, one of the things that I was most impressed by was that it sets that tone, that, that emotional tone, but it, it sustains it all the way through. And no matter what indignities, uh, no matter what threat of violence or actual violence or intimidation or uh, oppression or uh, humiliation, the characters suffer, and they do suffer quite a great deal, that feeling of love or or affection is not diminished in any way. It sustains. And I'm a slow person in some ways, and it's only after I thought about it, obviously that's the whole point of the book in some ways, that love uh, is able to endure these slings and arrows and whatever, and uh, the way that you you actually made that part of the texture of the book itself was was really impressive, and I wondered if you've already touched on this a bit, but was it a matter of focusing the lens away from overt, explicit violence, and making instead the 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 most vivid moments in the book those tender moments in the bathtub and so on, like you've talked about, and and I wonder if that, is that something that has developed in this book that's new, looking away from violence and keeping it in the periphery, or is it it's just the way this story is? Yeah, look, it is to some extent. Um, we talked, I mean, not about this particular issue, but one of the things that came up in the earlier session was about my trajectory as a writer. So if you talk about physicality, in my first book of stories, Shadowboxing, there's a story um, called The Lesson, where a father gives a son a boxing lesson in the backyard. And one of the things I did in that was to choreograph the action around language. And so that the whole nature of jabbing, punching, and the rhythm of that was expressed through a sort of staccato language. So by the time you finish that story, you're pretty much exhausted because of the repetition of violence in it. Um, I think what's happened not only of moving violence off camera, I think in this book, even though we know that these people are constantly threatened by violence, it's not explicitly articulated in the novel. The focus is, as you say, the lens is drawn toward intimacy. So the bath scene indicates that. A scene, I, again, I talked about earlier, where an Aboriginal woman called Wanda who has spent her whole life away from family, she literally clings to Odette's body when they hug and she just savours everything about this woman because she's never known touch or love. And one of the horrific testimonies of any people who have spent childhood in institutions, and this is Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people, is kids will talk, adults will say, I never felt the touch of love as a child. If anything, they felt the touch of violence. But never being held, never being kissed, never being told they're loved. So that deprivation in wonder is such that she just savours that physicality. Unfortunately, and it's indicated in passing with um, Sissy's mother, Lila, for some people who suffer that um, violence of children of not being loved, they're unable to, to um, enjoy or so they can never be hugged. So they go through a life of that deprivation and then they sort of, it becomes what governs them. So I'm a big hugger. 
I'll give you a hug after this. <laughs> Thank um, you. Thank you. Yeah, we're big, we're big huggers. But, you know, with some people, and I know people in my family who have suffered violence, who they don't want you to touch them. And you've got to you know, respect that, which is, which, is, which is really terrible. And then um, the other aspect of it with, with this is that whatever violence or the, sorry, the potential for violence of being taken from a family is swirling around the periphery of Sissy's life because Odette holds her so dearly, she's a bit naive to that, which is what gets her in trouble when she goes on the, the bike ride because she doesn't even understand that threat. Um, and the other thing that I did in this book, which I think older Aboriginal women would understand this and it, other people may not get it as much, but that's okay, is that the Dr Singer character is, is pivotal to Odette because he's a, a man, a non-Aboriginal man, who she, when she gets sick and is told to go and see the doctor, she is very hesitant. Now, for Aboriginal women in decades past and probably, no, and definitely still in some parts of Australia, to go to a doctor brings them into contact with bureaucracies that could have a really negative impact on their lives, on their children's lives. So a lot of Aboriginal women died never having gone to a doctor when they had an illness. So when Odette goes into the doctor's surgery and he says, oh, can you take your clothes off, which is just her outer clothes down to her slip, that is such a threatening request. But in that, in that scene and subsequent scenes, she then becomes so surprised by the dignity that he treats her with. So I wanted to, I wanted to write a book where to say, well, I didn't want to romanticise that, but say there are other ways that are possible here. And she accepts his dignity and his trust towards her and that changes or it develops a relationship. So in all of those, and there, by the way, I've, I've almost forgotten, one of my favourite scenes is when Henry Lamb drives Odette and Sissy to the railway station and she hugs him and she, in the, it says she'd never been touched by a white man before and then not voluntarily. So we know there's something there, but it doesn't have to be discussed. But her and Henry, who are lifelong friends, they're going to defy that. So it might seem like a strange thing to say, here is an act of transgression. And it's, a, about, it's not about sex, it's about emotional love. So all through the novel I wanted to highlight of course, where there is violence, but yeah, this, not, this is not a book of you know, good Aboriginal people and terrible white people. It's a, a book about good Aboriginal people and some terrible white people and some remarkable white people because if you don't show that possibility, your book's not ever going to... Yeah, there's no capacity for change if your book is going to be didactic and oppositional like that. Well, that's... Uh, there's, uh, a lot of the characters you just mentioned I wanted to ask you about, but that on that last point, uh, I notice in a lot of the reviews, uh, for good reason, they're, any of the reviews I've seen, they're glowing reviews. But one of the, I've seen a bad one. <laughs> well, I'm you sure you, that one. <laughs> no, I didn't see that what one. What about the fucking good ones? <laughs> no, I, I've seen... I know the one you're talking about. They're, no, they're all glowing reviews. They're all good. I swear to God. But I notice one tendency in them is... Uh, frequently for people, for the reviewers to talk about this as an allegorical book 
of black, white, good and bad. And one of my questions was, I was wondering about that because I think it, it's, I can see why they would say that, but it runs the risk of diminishing some of the subtleties. And I think, for example, like a, maybe a, even a moral subtlety is the one you talked about, and that is something I noticed, for example, in, that, in this regard, is the, the situation is awful in many ways for the protagonists and for a lot of the characters. But it seems to me you've made a deliberate decision to have more good people, more generous, kind loving people who are willing to go well beyond what ought to be expected of them, then there are out-and-out villains, even including some of the people who are guilty of just looking the... Not just, but guilty of looking the other way. And I wondered if that was... Obviously it is. That was part of the, the meaning of the, of the book in some ways that maybe... And I wondered whether the message of that in some ways was also that a terrible regime can function despite good people and despite... Yeah, and I mean... I was reading the London Review of Books last night in bed. That's what you do in Wollongong. And um, there's a letter from a guy who got a really shit review in the previous issue. So he just bails on the reviewer. And then London Review of Books, I think, unfairly allowed the reviewer a right of reply. And his opening line was, it's never good form to write a letter about a poor review. Um, With that in mind... The, the, the review you're talking about is Geordie Williamson's in The Australian. And what annoys me about the content of that is that, and I think it's about hitting a nerve and people seeing what they want to see. In my view, there's only one, what I would consider out-and-out bad guy in that, and that is Sergeant Lowe. I think my writing of the other policeman, Bill Shea, is, is complex He's, he's a character who's in a way, he's become hopeless because of his own history. So that he's, he's a, he is pathetic, but I have sympathy for that because he was, you know, a dead sister. And why, why, how, how could you do this? You know, like we've been childhood friends and look what you did. And it destroyed him. It didn't destroy Odette. So, and then with characters like Henry Lamb, who's golden, you know, he's fantastic that I think it's interesting that people do see what they want to see to some extent and to gloss over those characters. like So Henry Lamb's a major character in the novel. He's not a minor character. That's right. By the way, since we're doing a hatchet job, Geordie Williamson also said that there was a, yeah, this character's good, the Jewish doctor's good, and the gay character. There's no gay character in the book. He named the, <laughs> He said the guy in the welfare board was gay. Have a look the, at this. The young guy who helps Odette. Fill- oh, I, all right. That's weird. I can see why he might think that. I, well, wish someone would tell me why because I can't see why. Because he's nice, I guess. He's nice and he's wearing a suit. He's wearing a he's suit. He's dressed and he's nice. Yeah, he's so, gay. Look, it did, that annoys me, but one is you can't, you can't get focused on that because the reception of the book has been... Fantastic. In other words, the readers have been great. Um, a couple of the reviews, which really I love, and I don't know with your work, I love reviews that don't talk about a book or good or bad. They aren't, they work with the content. Yeah. So there's been a couple of essays on this book. There was one in the Saturday paper, which I just thought that's such a smart essay, and the essay really is 
he's not interested in me, it's content. And I, I think I, I really um, enjoyed that. So, yeah, it does, it does disappoint me because those relationships were written because I want, I want to believe in hope. Yep. Hope is so vital in this novel and that the situation for Aboriginal people in the 1960s, as is alluded to when they get to the city, is that there's also great support amongst non-Aboriginal people for the struggle. So whether it be the Jewish doctor, whether it be the lawyer who, a little line where he says, well, he's in the Communist Party, and he said, well, better a red than a white. Yeah, um, people who came on board with the struggle say, yeah, it does disappoint me, but you've got to be careful not to get fixated on critics. The only, the only thing that has happened with this book, and again, it is interesting about when you're thinking about, like this book has sold a lot more than my other books. It's got a lot more publicity. The reviews have been amazing. But what disappointed me most, the most disappointing comment I heard, and it's interesting when you step aside as a writer who's, you know, um, we can all get wounded by a bad review and we can all be, what would they fucking know? And, you know, take it really personally and you've got to get over that. But Alicia Sometimes, who's a Melbourne-based poet, she reviewed the book on the ABC and she, she loved the book. What struck me as odd, and there is about hitting a nerve, I think. So there are people who, in white Australia, who you're going to hit a raw nerve. The host of that show is a man called Raphael Epstein, who does drive. He's an ABC guy. He's not a shock jock. Halfway through the review, and she wrote to me afterwards, both apologising and really didn't understand, is that when she normally went on that show and reviewed a book, she just reviewed the book, and then afterwards, if he'd read it, he might comment. She was reviewing the book and talking about it and talking about it, and he interrupted. He said, I, I hated that book. I couldn't finish it. And she got really flustered because she didn't know what was going on. And I was listening to it and I was actually able to step away. I didn't think, what would you know? This is my book. I was, I was, I was like a listening, what's going on here? And I think for some readers with Aboriginal content or content that critiques some aspects of colonialism, people find it very difficult to, to cope with. And one of the things I was talking about in an earlier session today is that um, I, a story I was told recently about someone putting up Aboriginal books to the Victorian Education Board for the Year 12 um, prospectus is books being knocked back and the comments coming back, we might get political flack from the right, we might get flack from a parents group. So there are still people who it's just not a story they want you to tell. And sometimes it might be disguised as a, a comment by a reviewer. But at times in this, it was almost, it was really raw. It was almost involuntary. And another comment I heard, some said, this is a women's book. This is a women's book, which I know why women like the book, but I, to think of it as a women's book seems odd. And when I asked the guy, who said it, he said it to me directly, he read it, he saw some of the issues, I think they'll work with women, but men would be more critical. So I think it's, the inference was more a critique of women's reading habits as if they were emotionally engaged, but we can, we can, we can avoid that. That, seems, that just seems, both fronts, just insane. And, but I can see why, in a, in, in a sense, that this book has the potential to uh, 
trigger people who are really ha- prone to that kind of reaction. Yeah. And I, 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 I'll, I'll give you a scene which I think is, is great in that, for that. Uh, Bill Shea is the, the pathetic the old school constable who's been in the town for years and is about to be replaced by this new uh, uh, Sergeant Lowe. And he's essentially a drunk who's been looking the other way his entire life. And one scene which I want to talk about a bit later is where um, Odette goes in and asks permission to leave town. And she's rejected, of course, goes back home, and Bill Shea decides he's going to become a hero and a a saviour, rushes back to Odette and says, I've written you the note, feeling like he's... He's a, he's a white knight in shining armour. And she says to him, you know what, Bill, the only difference between you and the other guy is that he's, he's, he's direct in the way he abuses us. You're just the same. There's really no difference between you. But he thinks that he's doing this heroic act. And I think one of the... It must be a frustrating book for people who are prone to have that react because Odette as a character doesn't pull any punches. She knows when to keep her head down because she has to, but she's not going to compromise in a moment like that and say, thank you very much, you're my hero. Make the, make the white guy feel good. And it's, that's, that's a, a really good reading of it. So she puts him back in his place. Having said that, is, it's why I think, again, the character of Henry was so important because with Henry and Odette, there is just this friendship and love of which is completely, there's no filter. She's not in any way suspicious of Henry. She's not in any way suspicious of his motivation. When he builds the bike for Sissy, she doesn't think, oh, why is this white man doing it? That's Henry and that's what he does. So that's become for a lifetime of experience and observation. And why she says what she says to Bill Shea is that his attempt to become a hero later, it's too late. He has caused too much damage to her and her family and it would not be possible for her to allow him to, re- to redeem himself. So that is important to me. I think it's relative here, though, to the, to the power of Aboriginal women um, and also the people being confronted by, in other aspects of the novel, real damage. So with Dolores, the woman who never finds her children and consequently does something terrible, um, there's that scene where she starts telling Odette the story about trying to smuggle her daughter out of town and she pops out of the suitcase. But rather than cry, she starts laughing and she's laughing hysterically because it sent her crazy. So it's not it's, people can't get off the hook lightly. And when Sissy talks about meeting her mother... There is no happy ending. And that was important as well because although I wanted to show the strength of relationships and that strength being maintained between um, Odette and Sissy, um, that nearly calm, is that it doesn't always work out that way. So I, I know Aboriginal people who have found their family, found their own mother and f- by the time they found their parent particularly mothers, their mothers have been so damaged for so long, there was very little 
So I've got a friend who's been doing a family history and I met her mother at a book launch and she loves her mother and her mother comes along but and she would say this, so I'm not being disrespectful, her mother is sort of vacant. She's She doesn't, she says hello but she just as emotionally at some point in her life she had to cut herself off and she's like that with her own daughter. She's not like that with the grandkids which is great but her and her daughter have a sort of a friendship but her daughter can't penetrate that relationship anymore and I would imagine that at some point in the mother's life after having her daughter taken from her, she set up some sort of screen to so she could live because in other instances people can't live or they, they, they destroy themselves. Yeah, I, I think that's... Since you, you, you mentioned uh, Lila being located by her daughter... Sissy at the end, in the epilogue. Um, I don't feel like it's a spoiler to say then, but she, it, it, that's an amazing... There are a couple of things we haven't told you. <laughs> there, yeah, there's plenty, there's plenty more uh, secrets and, uh, and surprises in the book. But um, that's, a, that's a really... I think that's, a, a, in a way, a beautiful moment f- uh, that you set this up, that she's missing throughout the book, and you always assume that at some point Sissy will reunite with her mother and that will be the happy, happy ending. And there's a few hints here and there throughout the book where people talk about maybe what we deserve is a happy ending and then even though she's been missing all this time, physically they find each other but she's still missing. She's still, she's just not there as you say. And, but I, I want to go straight to another scene which I think was a, probably the most provocative scene uh, in the book and... It's where I thought it was a very subtle provocation where, as I said before, Odette goes and asks, Odette Brown goes and asks for permission to leave town. And she's asking the police officer to sign her basically a ticket of leave to go uh, out of his territory. And she says, for a funeral. And, of course, he says, no, get the hell out of here. You're not going anywhere. Um, But one, it was at that point in the novel that, the full, the slowly accumulated full force of the, the, the oppression and the indignity of all of the, this entire system came crashing down on me as a reader and I wondered if that scene was intended there to put the reader, whoever they might be, really in the front row of this system of abuse and because it really felt intensely... Yeah, um... Well, it was, again, it was a scene written that when, just when Odette is even self-deceptive in the sense that she thinks, well, like, I think in the aftermath, the whole notion that she thought he might give her permission is ludicrous, but she's desperate for something. So she, she, she pleads with him and he just is so abruptly oppositional to that and then of course that sets the whole train of events of what she decides to do instead of that so yes it was deliberate and yes it's based on my work as a historian and knowing this is occurring over and over again in this period I will tell a quick anecdote that informed this I had a friend of mine whose mother was the first woman to graduate as an Aboriginal nurse in Western Australia the first thing she did was flee to Victoria to get out of the clutches of the um, Western Australian Aboriginal Protected Board. 
Her mother had been lived her most of her life under A.O. Neville, the chief protector of Aborigines, and people know people know him better as Kenneth Branagh um, in Rabbit Proof Fence. But she asked me, this woman, she's since passed, the remarkable woman, she got her mother's file from the protector of from the Native Affairs, that was called in Western Australia, of her mother's file under Neville. And because I was working as a historian at the time, she asked me if I could read it and do some interpretation. And it's horrific for that level of control. So her mother was a, an upstanding woman. She'd never been in trouble with the police, etc. She lived in a country town. She had a job. She had a bank account. She went to church. She never drank alcohol. She'd never been in trouble with the police. She writes to A.O. Neville, says, I've met a man who I want to marry. We've been seeing each other for 18 months. Um, this is an Aboriginal man. Um, that man, with all the testimonials, he's a motor mechanic. He's got money in the bank. He's never been in trouble with the police. Doesn't drink alcohol. References from his bosses say what a remarkable person. And it's all about uplifting. This man is being able to uplift himself out of Aboriginal primitivism and all the rest of it. A.O. Neville writes back and says... I've read your testimonials, they're wonderful. I want to um, congratulate you on being such a decent woman and this is obviously a decent man and says this and he said, but it is ludicrous to think that I would give you permission to marry this man because um, I've got photographs of them. He said, you must marry a man of lighter skin. You cannot marry an Aboriginal man of darker skin. And then he says, you must understand you cannot marry for love. He says that to her and refuses the marriage and then makes a ludicrous suggestion that if she could find a white civil servant, in other words, in the public service, it might be possible for the civil servant, if he marries her, that, she would, that he will get a bonus in his salary. So um, this is happening in the Territory as well at the time, trying to convince white public servants to marry Aboriginal women to dilute the colour of their children. So the point in that is that there is no point in that that Neville thinks at all that he never questions himself. There's no reflection so in the novel, Sergeant Lowe is a character who will never question what he's doing and he'll never be dissuaded from what he's doing. And that's why, which is not the ending, because you've read the book, in the manuscript originally he gets murdered by Jack. So that scene where he comes out with the axe, Jack follows him and me being a vindictive person, Jack just... <laughs> In my in the, he just went, fucking whack, killed him. But I changed that because even though I wanted him dead, that would have also been a misrepresentation because of those men, they're, they're out there. They'll always be out there. They're malevolent figures who are out there on the horizon and they're ready to do damage and they're still there so that, He's like this spectre. Yeah, yeah. And well, he comes out of the mist. Yeah. So he, he's got this presence. Yeah. And unfortunately, what it says for Aboriginal people, particularly not only, but outside big cities where you can disappear in some ways, that you're never safe. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I won't name her, but there's a great Aboriginal writer I know who lives in Northern Territory who's lauded as a great writer when they brought in the intervention in the territory and went to that plastic debit card, this woman who was a writer and worked in the public service is now a woman humiliated by the government 
who's told she's got to go to and get all her groceries on a card and she's not allowed to drink alcohol. And they, those indignities are there today. We know that they're there with the murder of our young and we know that they're there with the removal of children. So we, I didn't want to, while I wanted to write a, night, a novel of genuine hope, I didn't want to write a fantasy of sort of, you know, where everything's going to be fine. Well, talking about fantasy, just as an aside, when that scene particular when that goes and asks for that uh, ticket and is denied, um, I had the stupidest possible thought when I was reading that. I thought, how can it be that people are so fascinated and excited by something, no disrespect to it, like The Handmaid's Tale, this dystopian fantasy where there's this horrible regime of abuse and dehumanization. It is a speculative fiction. Well, can I just... I mean, that's interesting because I've never read um, The Handmaid's Tale and I didn't watch the television. My, my daughter, who doesn't read books but had to read this because she launched it for me, um, she said... I mean, I, she said exactly that. She goes, why do we need to watch The Handmaid's Tale? Now, I'm not, I'm not going to bag... I think she just she won the book, at, you know, we'll give her a due. But she did say... But that is... I mean... That goes back to my point, is that when the VCE board knocked back several Aboriginal books, the other thing they said was, oh, the material is a bit too confronting and sensitive. And this is just on this sort of stuff. Now, if it's sensitive, as long as it's from elsewhere, people don't mind it. So whether it be The Handmaid's Tale or endless stories of war tragedy, I'm not... I'm not being offensive about people who've gone through those difficulties, but endless. Yeah, you can, you could say 10 Holocaust novels, which, yeah, really get to you, and people, you know, you haven't got enough horror. And, in fact, it's quite interesting that you can make a literary industry out of that terrible suffering and people think it's okay to continually do that. But a book, like people do say to me quite openly, and you've read more of my work, people have said to me, look, your book sounds interesting, but I just don't want to have to be confronted with that. And it's nothing – and honestly, and I'm not trying to sell a book, I can't understand that because when I read the book myself or when I'm writing it, I'm thinking, well, I'm, 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 this is not about confronting people with evil. This is about showing people love. It's about showing people strength. So I really – I find that puzzling and, and I go back to myself as a reader – and think if I just want to – I have comfort reads. So Alistair McLeod's short story collection, Island, is my comfort read. So when I feel I need a bit of nurturing, I get – I'm big – I've got a wool fetish, Luke, which if I give you a hug in my wool and jump one day, you really – will really get something going. Um, so I understand a comfort read and I understand that, that notion of going back something that makes you feel good. But as a reader, I, I want to – I want the challenge of being a reader. I want to extend myself as a reader. And so I, I, I just I don't get that. No, I, you must despair as a, as a writer because if, if somebody felt too confronted by the content of this book, I couldn't imagine a more open and gentle and loving way to handle this story. So it's just, it must be absolutely impossible to reach 
some readers. They just must yeah. be... Yeah, look, I'll just say, I mean, I should backtrack. One is it is impossible, so you never write for those readers. You don't think, well, next time I'm going to try and grab that audience because that would diminish the great readers you have. And then the other point is say, I have great readers. I have very loyal readers that, and they've increased... Yeah, people say, what do you love being about a writer? What I love most being about a writer is going to local libraries where you're, you're, most of the people are borrowing your books. They're so literate in – they're great readers. They read all the time. You're going to have a conversation with a dozen people over a cup of tea and you learn so much about your work. So I actually don't despair because while we've talked about that, my general experience has been one of – incredible gratitude and being just struck by the readers I have of of how generous they are with my work. And and so I have, you know, and most of my readers, like most of us, are, are older women. Uh, and my wife, you know, she says, oh, you, you're huge with the over 60s. And I say, well, that's because I'm 62. I, I should be. <laughs> but these are women who have read – you've got to imagine these women, older women readers – They've been reading for 50 years or more. They've probably read hundreds and hundreds of books. They know they know it back to front. So when they have a conversation with you, you're listening to an expert. And they're the best conversations you can have around your work. Um, speaking of conversations, I think this one's in danger of, of, of wrapping up without getting you to uh, ask your questions. So could you please uh, give a, a huge round of applause to Tony for this wonderful conversation? <laughs> If you'd like to hear more from Wollongong Writers Festival, because trust me, there's some really amazing sessions yet to drop, or you just want to hear more from regional writing festivals, then head on over to our website, www.rightsforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the Rights for Festivals podcast, or you can go and subscribe wherever you get your pods, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, all those good places. Please do give us a rating and review because then we can spread the goodness and other people can find us too. Thank you so much for listening to the Rights for Festivals podcast and supporting regional writing festivals. This podcast episode was produced and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting. Podcasts for a positive world.